baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for joining us, as always, on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. This Mother's Day weekend, we are talking about a very extraordinary woman, a mother, a grandmother, one of the most impactful chroniclers of American human history of the 20th century. In fact, if we think of the most iconic photo taken by Dorothea Lange, it is the photo of the migrant mother. She took that photo in California in the throes of the Dust Bowl migration during the Great Depression of the 1930s. Some may not know that although born in New Jersey, Dorothea Lange made the Bay Area her home. And so we can claim her as one of our own, as the Oakland Museum of California has done very proudly. The Oakland Museum of California is the caretaker of an incredible amount of Dorothea Lange's work. Negatives, prints, materials that tell the story of her artistry, why she saw her gift as a responsibility to shine a light on those in need. Art, history, activism, American citizenship. That can all be seen in the new exhibition, Dorothea Lang, Politics of Seeing. It's opened this weekend at the Oakland Museum of California, and I'm happy to be joined by Drew Johnson, the Oakland Museum's curator of photography and visual culture and the curator of this exhibition. Drew Johnson, thanks for joining us on In-Depth. Hi, my pleasure. Congratulations on the opening of this exhibition. I know that you have been studying Dorothea Lang's work for a good part of your professional career. Right. Well, I'm, I'm coming up on 28 years at the museum, actually. And uh, during that time, the Lang collection is, um, it, it's really the, we have a wonderful photography collection. It chronicles 150 years of California photography going all the way back to daguerreotypes from the gold rush. Uh, but it's really the Lang collection that it, we're best known for. How did you come to have so much of Dorothea Lang's work? Um, back in the 1960s, when the museum building was just a, a architect's plans, basically, um, the the founding curator of photography, who was Therese Heyman, uh, approached Dorothea Lang and her husband, Paul Taylor. Paul Taylor was a fascinating figure in his own right. He was a social scientist at the University of California at Berkeley who specialized in studying migrant migratory farm labor, farm workers, and trying to help their conditions that they worked under. After Lang passed away, she continued talking with Paul Taylor. Um, and the collection ended up coming to Oakland Museum. Uh, I, I think he was impressed with the plans for the building as a museum of the people, uh, a museum that specialized in California history, art, and science. Uh, and the promises that because it was a people's museum, we were going to share her imagery with the people, make it available not just to researchers and scholars, but to anyone who had an interest in seeing the work. How did she come to California? As I mentioned, she was born in New Jersey, but she had quite a personal history, childhood history um, of her own, which I'm guessing made her much more 
empathetic in her work to those in need. Exactly. She had a fascinating life history, and the story of how she came to California is is, is fun, too. But um, not so fun was her chi- some aspects of her childhood. As she said, I have faced a lot of things that a child shouldn't really have to meet alone, but she acknowledged that it gave her great strength in life. The first of those was she had a fairly comfortable early childhood in Hoboken, New Jersey, but at the age of seven, she contracted polio, um, that left her with a withered leg and a rather pronounced permanent limp. Then a few years after that, her father abandoned the family. Uh, she actually adopted her mother's maiden name, Lang. She was born Dorothea Nutshorn. And um, they had um, less income. They had to move to New York City, uh, where she was, Dorothea was kind of left on her own to sort of walk the streets of New York while her mother worked at, the, at a public library. And she talked about becoming how she became fascinated with uh, observing people on the street. And also, um, as she said it, I had to step over the drum, drunks and winos, and I sort of developed a cloak of invisibility that allowed me to not be seen and how useful that was <laughs> as a documentary photographer later on. But by the time she was um, in her early 20s, she had taken a few photography classes, notably with Clarence White, great East Coast photographer, and she set out on this plan to travel around the world with her best friend, a young woman named Franzi. They made it as far as San Francisco, where they had their money stolen oh. and became stranded and uh, had to spend a little time living at the Y. And she got a job at a photo finishing counter of a drugstore. And through that, got to know uh, some local photographers and artists. Uh, Chiefly, uh, her first person she met became a hugely important figure in her life was Imogen Cunningham and the great photographer and her husband, Roy Partridge. Um, So sort of through connections and seemingly a lot of charm, she was a very attractive and charming young woman. Uh, She got backing to open her own portrait studio which very quickly became a very not only a successful business, but a place that was a, a rendezvous, a, a hangout for the San Francisco bohemian community, a lot of artists. She would be down in the darkroom developing her pictures, and a, a party would be going on upstairs in her reception room. About where was this studio, and about what year was this? This would have been uh, the early 1920s, throughout the 1920s. Uh, it was in what was known as the Montgomery Block, mm. uh, the Monkey Block, they called it, which was a row of Gold Rush-era buildings, I think not far from the studio, actually, right. that housed a lot of artists' studios. And then the Great Depression hit, and the Dust Bowl. And those are the first photos probably that most of us think of. But as a woman photographer and being out here in the West, she went to work for the U.S. government documenting this. Explain uh, for folks who might not have known about that program. This was part of putting people to work, but also during the Depression, but also part of documenting uh, American history. Exactly. It it, it comes as a surprise to a lot of people nowadays to imagine the United States government hiring a whole group of photographers to go out and sort of record the social scene. It sort of arrived there at an interesting pathway. Um, You know, once she was, um, as you say, the Depression hit, uh, her business declined a little bit. And the way she fell into documentary photography, she did studio-based portraiture. And that was intensely important to her uh, development as a photographer because it taught her to establish a rapport with with her people she was photographing and so on. But she didn't really know anything about documentary photography. And one day she was idle in the studio, had nothing 
particular to do, and she just seemingly on impulse grabbed her camera and went out into the streets of San Francisco, ended up at, uh, at a bread line, and took one of her most famous photographs, the very first, her very first uh, trip outside the studio in, uh, in the Depression, White Angel Bread Line, which shows a man um, leaning against a fence, holding a tin cup while he's standing in line and waiting for a handout of free soup, his hat pulled down over his eyes. And um, it's one of the rare instances of, uh, of an artist sort of seemingly uh, overnight on basically one visit to the street finding what her purpose was. And the, I know you were asking about the, um, uh, the, the federal government program, but it was the work she did on her own in the streets of San Francisco. And she later, very soon after that, she photographed the general strike that was happening mm-hmm. in San Francisco and May Day rallies in Civic Center Plaza and things like that. And it was that work that caught the attention of first Paul Taylor, who became her second husband, uh, and then the State of California Resettlement Administration, uh, the photographs of the migrant workers that she took on trips with Paul, uh, and then finally the federal uh, Farm Security Administration. The, this, this is the Franklin Roosevelt New Deal era right. with all these alphabet soup of agencies and so forth. But one of the things that, that, that I really learned uh, in putting the show together that I had not known before was it was really her photographs she took in California of migrant farm workers in California for the state of California that inspired the Roy Stryker at the Farm Security Administration to spotlight photography, to really highlight photography as the major enterprise of the Federal Farm Security Administration. He'd never seen anything like her work, these these searing, you know, uh, photographs of people in distress that were still um, recognizable individuals. She would she acknowledged their dignity and their strength, but it was a clear plea for assistance, for action on the part of the government to do something to help these people. They were so powerful that as um, uh, as they said, the, the, the whole agency's direction changed, and they hired a whole crew of photographers, included people like Walker Evans and um, uh, uh, Marion Post Wolcott and Arthur Rothstein and Gordon Parks uh, to create what is this incredible record that now resides in the Library of Congress and at the Oakland Museum of California in the Lang Collection. A lot of the programs that uh, helped focus on the arts to put people to work and to document what was going on during the Depression and coming out of the Depression. We see it everywhere in post offices and the murals in Coit Tower, the art from the WPA. But you're talking about not only this art uh, as being a documentation of it, but actually spurring change and activism. Right. Well, it's interesting, the distinction, actually, because there were federal arts programs. You mentioned Coit Tower was the one of the mm-hmm. first to, to do that, and the WPA that employed all kinds of artists all around the country. Uh, but the photography for the Farm Security Administration was not at all treated as an art project. It was, it was considered, it was part of, uh, they, they put it under the historical division of the Resettlement Administration, and the idea was it was to record the social scene. Keep in mind this was a time when photography hadn't really established credentials as an art form in its own right, so I actually don't think the government could have secured funding for to hire photographers as artists, but they could to secure photographers as people who are gathering evidence. 
If you're just joining us, we are talking about the work of Dorothea Lange, iconic American photographer of the 20th century, and the new exhibition honoring her work and displaying her work at the Oakland Museum of California. We're joined by Drew Johnson. He is the museum's curator of photography and visual culture. I'm Jane McMillan. There are a couple of quotes from Dorothea Lange that that made me understand or helped me understand a little bit about how she viewed, and you touched on this, how she viewed her subjects. Well, she didn't view them as her subjects. She viewed them as collaborators and, and their personal dignity. And these were people that were probably at the lowest ebb of their lives when she took their photographs, uh, poverty, social issues, um, Japanese internment, as you mentioned, bread lines. Um, but she said, to me, beauty appears when one feels deeply, and art is a byproduct of an act of total attention. Mm-hmm. And that's when I think of the migrant mother photo, um, so many of her photos, I think that act of total attention. Can you explain how she may be different from other photographers or even other artists Um, that have humans as their subjects, how she interacted and how that shows up in these intimate, intimate photos. Yeah, the documentary photography um, has a bad reputation in some quarters, sometimes deserved for um, what could be, has been described as poverty porn. Uh, And uh, some documentary photographs have a, a quality of exploiting um, people who are defenseless mm-hmm. and maybe um, emphasizing the hopelessness and their helplessness. Sensationalizing. In, sensationalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, not really acknowledging them as individuals, but as symbols only. The 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 the, the wonder of Lang is 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 how she avoids that. <laughs> how she really. Um, you know, someone saw looking at her photographs recently said, you know, when you look at a photograph of, say, a family on the side of the road that she photographed in the 30s, you're seeing a very specific individual family, but you're also seeing every family. You're yes. seeing a family that could be your family under different circumstances. And that really stems from her technique, and we hope that comes across in the exhibition. She um, was famous for, as she put it, not swooping in and out in a cloud of dust. She would sit down with people. She would get their stories. She would tell them her background story. She'd said, how many kids do you have? And then they would ask, maybe ask about her, do you have children? And she would talk to them, and she would uh, learn where they came from and how much they were earning. And uh, uh, sometimes not even take her camera out till she had been with them for 20 or 30 minutes. Um, this is quite extraordinary. I think it probably has something to do with the fact that uh, she was married to a social scientist who gave her sort of rudimentary training in uh, recording the facts and the circumstances and the words of people she photographed. She also, um, which she was v- scrupulous about, uh, a lot of her uh, quotations, she would rush back to the car and write down what people said v- verbatim in the dialect so that a lot of her captions almost sound like um, excerpts from John Steinbeck novels or something. This is all part of her storytelling, which was wider than her photography only. Exactly. And she always uh, hoped and intended that the photographs would remain with the captions and the details and the context. 
And I think it became something of a disappointment later in life when her photographs were, when she was finally being honored as an artist, something she was reluctant, a title she was reluctant to accept. Uh, But just at that moment, uh, art museums tended to show her photographs in a way that kind of robbed them of that context, that just made them into aesthetic, beautiful photographs. And, and, you know, she does, her photographs are, have social consciousness and they have beauty and they have very specific context. A lot of it was her, simply her technique of not only speaking with people and, and collaborating with people, but also just her technical mastery. For instance, um, if you look at her photographs over and over again, you will see she shoots people from a low angle. Uh, it makes a very striking composition, but it also has the immediate effect of conveying stature and dignity and strength in people who are obviously in very bad circumstances, but they're giving a sense that they can, they can survive it. In an age today in which we are seeing social angst and we're seeing a great economic divide and political divide and, and people are frightened uh, and some are really struggling, how do you see the current um, ability of all of us to be photographers? We've all got, most of us have smartphones and there's that immediate, an immediate result of snapping a photo or snapping a dozen photos and deleting them digitally. And But the impact of photos that the photos that Dorothea Lang took come from her patience uh, and knowing her subjects. And so I guess I'm asking you to give us your opinion of how activism through photography or documentation through photography today in the digital age has learned from Dorothea Lang and those like her or could learn, or is, is there anything that matches up? Yeah, we, we obviously are living in difficult times. Uh, and you're right, um, everybody has a, walks around with not only a camera, but a, a video camera nowadays. And we've all seen what that uh, effect has, has had on law enforcement and our attitudes towards law enforcement and so forth. Um, and that's, um, that's a new tradition that's starting with really interesting. And I don't think we figured out quite what, what that means in the long run. There are definitely people out there who are directly inspired by Lang and the, the, the more de- deliberate and intimate style that, that she practiced. In fact, we're showing three of them in the exhibition. Um, Janet Delaney, uh, Ken Light, and Jason Jacks. They're all photographers who work themes similar to the themes that Lang explored and use techniques similar to the ones, their own individual style, of course, um, and are very clear about acknowledging a direct inspiration from her work and her example. When we started putting the show together, we knew there were going to be really powerful ties to things that were happening now. Uh, it's not just an historical show in any way. And I'm happy to say that um, uh, we didn't even have to try very hard to make the people get the connections right away. So there are dedicated, very powerful, strong photographers with fundamentals backing in the art out there, continuing the tradition with the same goal in mind of helping us all to see things that need to be addressed. It seems that what you're saying is that it's all context, that that's the difference between one of us just snapping a photo or a video digitally and saying, here it is, and something that the photographers of current day that you're talking about are the videographers, and how Dorothea Lange and, and they did it as well, was to take the time to know the context of the photo and to, or video and to present it accurately using maybe using their artistry to encapsulate the context in that one image. 
Context is a big part of it, certainly. Um, and the, the other part, and I think the most important part of it, is empathy. Um, she clearly had an enlarged organ of empathy more than, than, than the ordinary person. And, the, I mean, that is really what um, um, con- allowed her to make the connection. Context, yes, but the connection with the people she's photographing. And not just the connection between her and the subject, but the way she invites us to make a connection with the subject. Um, it's really a really unique talent. What would we not know about American life, California's history about humanity without Dorothea Lange's photo. And she was in a unique position as the only California photographer uh, working in this realm with the government at that time and one of the few women at all. Right. Uh, she was the only West Coast photographer mm-hmm. working in that, that group. No, I, that's a great question. And I ask, and I've, I've asked myself that all the time, uh, especially when questions about government funding of the arts comes up. Uh, as, uh, if, if the government had not chosen to do a tiny little amount of money, I mean, these people were not paid very much at all. She, she, was, she had fortunately had her husband's University of California salary to fall back on. But this tiny expenditure of money created this incredible resource, what is now an archive. I mean, what's at the National Archives and the Library of Congress and at the Oakland Museum of California, this is a national treasure, artistic and historic and it, we honestly, we would not think of the Great Depression. We would not imagine those years, not just the Depression, but World War II, the internment of Japanese Americans that she also documented, the shipyards, Kaiser shipyards, all the things she photographed. We would think of them in a completely different way if it were not for her photographs and the, those of the other photographers. What were among her final projects? Yeah, she had some really interesting final projects, um, uh, a couple of which that we show in the exhibit. Um, you know, I mentioned just briefly the World War II, the Japanese internment, where, where she was basically fired and her photographs were censored for not portraying the vision of the version of the internment that the government wanted her to, and the Kaiser shipyards, the multiracial men and women working together. And then after the war, she had a series of health problems that sort of tended to restrict her to home. But uh, two projects that we show uh, are um, uh, a series called Death of a Valley, which was about the flooding of Berryessa Valley to create Uh, Lake Berryessa mm -hmm. and the removal of the this entire community, there was a town in the valley called Monticello, and they had the people, the houses, the livestock, the farms, they dug up the graves. And it's sort of a ode to the, the loss of a community, an early example of environmental, environmentalist photography when, when there was no such thing. And then my personal favorite of her late projects is a, a series called The Public Defender. And uh, that happened at the Alameda County Courthouse, directly across the street from the Oakland Museum of California, where she shadowed a young public defender named Martin Pulich, this intense, idealistic young man who, as she put it, could earn a lot more money in private practice, but he's dedicated to the proposition that every man deserves his day in court and nobody should be judged by the worst thing that they've ever done. So she basically followed him around, interviews in jail cells. She photographed the judge, the jury, witnesses testifying, the families of the of the accused before, during, and after sentencing. So it's just an incredible photo essay that very few people have seen. It's right there in Oakland. It was where it was taken, which is an extra thrill for us, of course. 
That's a, a gift to us personally, um, as well as uh, the larger history of the nation. But yeah, it's so intimate here locally. Another quote of hers, um, and I and this popped out of me because here we are using 30 minutes of an uh, uh, an audio program to talk about something that is a visual medium. And we'll put a link uh, to the Oakland Museum of California on our website, which is cbssf.com. And, and I know that uh, for those who aren't as familiar with Dorothea Lange's photos, they will immediately recognize them. And so as we have these in our mind's eye, at least, even though this is a verbal uh, medium, her quote, I think the visual life, the truly visual life, must be a great illumination. And to me, that says that we have to witness what's going on around us. Exactly. Not just see it, but witness it. And boy, did she witness it on behalf of all of us. Yes, that's, that's the title of the show, The Politics of Seeing. This was her faith, her faith that if you see certain things, you'll be driven to take action. And, uh, you know, she really um, uh, had that ability to, to help us see these things better than just about any photographer I can think of. And you know, the story of, of the, some of the people that she took photos of uh, continued. The migrant mother, that iconic photo of the mother on the side of the road with her children and her hand on her chin, one, I think wondering what next, that woman survived. And so did her children. She did. She, I think Florence Thompson is the woman in the photograph, and I think she died in 1978 and 1979. That's a fascinating example. It's, it's one of the two or three most frequently published photographs in American history. It really took a life of its own that confused Dorothea Lange. She was, out of all the thousands of photographs she take, she wasn't, couldn't quite figure why that one in particular. Florence Thompson herself, the migrant mother, was upset for most of her life about the fame that the mm -hmm. photograph had taken. Lang told the story of how that photograph, she was finishing up a long, long trip, uh, road trip, and was just hours from home, from heading back to Berkeley. Nipomo, California, is just in, in, near San Luis Obispo. It was a rainy day. She went by a sign on the side of the road that said, Pea Pickers Camp. And she thought, oh, I really should photograph that, but I'm exhausted. I have to get home. So she drove for another 20 miles heading north and having this argument with herself of, I should really go back, and finally made a U-turn, headed back to the pea pickers camp. And the first thing she saw was Florence Thompson and her children in their little lean-to there. She walked slowly towards those, taking what uh, took seven negatives, talked to her very briefly, uh, and got in the car and went home, saying, I've, I've done my assignment. And so she didn't follow her usual scrupulous note-taking. Um, and I think that's one of the things that actually eventually caused resentment on the part of Florence Thompson and her family. Uh, you know, once their circumstances improved and they were no longer destitute, um, I think she kind of resented the fact that she had become this symbol of uh, of despair and poverty um, on U.S. postage stamps and and <laughs> magazine covers and book covers. We have a section in the exhibition that has a little um, it's a case filled with little tchotchkes and souvenirs and things used T-shirts and mugs with the migrant mother image and and I can understand how that would be distressful to a person. Sure, although. Uh, Mrs. Thompson did give us uh, the gift of empathy, because certainly I think that photo evokes universal 
empathy. Exactly. And it caused immediate flow of cash to go to that pea, specific pea pickers camp. I mean, it was an incredibly effective image in terms of you know raising consciousness and money to help migrant workers. And later, not before she died, it actually helped Florence Thompson because the press around her, she had cancer and new stories started appearing. And because of the people loved the photograph so much, money started pouring in to help her. And after she died, the children who had for many years been upset about the photograph, you know, said, said, you know, we never realized how much Mama's photograph meant to people. And uh, it sort of began to appreciate, I think, um, its larger significance. Well, you can see that photo, of course, and uh, so much more of the work of this um, iconic American, Dorothea Lang, as the exhibition is open now this Mother's Day weekend, as we've been talking about the migrant mother photo. Uh, it is at the Oakland Museum of California. Drew Johnson is the Oakland Museum's curator of photography and visual culture, the curator of this exhibition of Dorothea Lang, The Politics of Seeing. Thank you, Mr. Johnson, for telling us about it. Uh, Best of luck with the exhibition. Thank you so much. I'm Jane McMillan. Thanks for joining us on In-Depth. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 